you very much for the uh, for the introduction. It's certainly uh, nice to be here, and uh, I've been here just over two weeks now, and I say that the, the welcome that I've received and the hospitality has been quite outstanding, so thank you to everyone. I might just start to... I'll probably stick fairly closely to my text as I, as I, as I present the, the paper this evening, but the Sacrament of Confirmation has a, a, a complex and contested history in the Church. And in 1971, a revised Roman rite came into use. It was approved by Pope Paul VI with the Apostolic Constitution Divine Consortium Naturae. And as with all documents of the Magisterium, the opening words, I think, set the large vision in which the document is, is to be considered. In this case, the opening words are the sharing in the divine nature given to individuals through the grace of Christ. And I think they, those words suggest that the sacrament of confirmation has ultimately to do with participation in the divine nature. Of course, that's not unique to the sacrament of confirmation, but it's the larger framework through which the theology of confirmation should be presented. And that provides a framework for exploring what I consider to be the central statement about the meaning of confirmation, given both in that apostolic constitution, but also in the introduction to the order of confirmation. Divino Consortium Nature says of confirmation that, in a certain way, it perpetuates the grace of Pentecost in the Church. And the introduction to the order of confirmation begins by saying that, through the sacrament of confirmation, the baptised receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit whom the Lord sent upon the apostles at Pentecost. So, confirmation is thus linked to Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, before I proceed to develop this theology of confirmation, I should say a few words about the approach that I'm taking. In fact, the approach has already been evident in what I've just said. I'm working from that age-old adage of lex orandi, lex credendi. I'm starting with the church's prayer in order to explain what the church believes regarding the sacrament of confirmation. And from this will come the theology, understood there as faith, seeking understanding. Of course, it's never a one-way street from prayer or worship to belief. There's always a mutual interaction, and the theologian must take account of this. And in fact, the complex history of the sacrament illustrates that there was an evolution in both the understanding and the liturgical practice over the centuries. And furthermore, this complexity also reveals that there was never a single uniform practice. I mean, there's the obvious difference between East and West, but even within these broad regions, there were local variations of practice and understanding. But within the scope of this seminar, I can't explore all of that diversity. So let me set some parameters around what I intend to do. I won't canvas all the historical variations in liturgical practice, but I'll take as the starting point of my, for my theological reflection the point at which Paul VI arrived in the order of confirmation. Further, I will not be exploring the liturgical developments, but will only call on specific liturgical prayers and practices when they'll help our understanding of the order of confirmation. And further, I will not enter into the debate about Paul VI's decision to locate the sacramental action in the anointing with chrism and the consequences this has for the place of the laying on of hands in the rite. That's a very interesting debate and it would deserve probably a lecture at least on its own. 
And working within these parameters, there's one other basic principle that I'm working with in my task of developing a theology of confirmation, and it's this. The role of the magisterium and the theologian are somewhat distinct, even if related. So the order of confirmation and the apostolic constitution tell us how the church worships and what the church believes without necessarily giving a fully developed theology of the sacrament. It's the task of the theologian to develop the theology, and that's what I'm setting out to do. So the paper's going to be in two large sections. The first, following the lead given in the Apostolic Constitution, will consider one of the liturgical sources that helped shape the order of, con order of confirmation. And then in a second section, I'll offer a theology of the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with this first as an insight from an Eastern source. The revised order of confirmation has introduced an Eastern formula as the central words of the sacrament. And those words are, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul VI notes that the expression, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, first appeared in the East around the 4th and 5th centuries. And his primary reference is to the catechetical lectures of Cyril of Jerusalem. And he notes that the expression was quickly accepted by the Church of Constantinople and still is used in Byzantine Rite churches today. There are three comments to make about this. The first comment is less significant than the other two, but is important, and it's this. The revision of the Order of Confirmation has involved serious interaction with non-Western, and specifically Eastern, sources. The result is that while the Order of Confirmation is clearly a Western liturgical expression, it is enriched by learnings from the East. And the ecumenical consequences of this will need to be explored, but that's not what I'm going to do this evening. The second comment is that Cyril's use of the expression seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit points to a major liturgical development that was taking place in the liturgical practice at Jerusalem and in the Syriac tradition more generally. And it's important to note that this liturgical change, it's important to note this liturgical change because it points to an evolution in the understanding of baptism and of anointing. And this has consequences for the theology of confirmation as it's presented in the order of confirmation. Prior to this period, there was in the Syriac tradition a pre-baptismal anointing, but no anointing after baptism. And the dominant motif of baptism was the baptism of Jesus, or more specifically, his anointing with the Spirit after his baptism and his investiture as the Messiah. Liturgical documents of this time link the pre-baptismal anointing with Old Testament anointing of priests and kings. And a further link is made to the text of 1 Peter 2.9, such that in the anointing a person is assimilated into Christ, priest and king, and thus incorporated into a royal priesthood. Around the 4th century, a post-baptismal anointing is introduced, and two things happen. One is that the sense of the pre-baptismal anointing changes, so that it begins to take the shape of an exorcism. And the other thing that happens is that the sense of the original pre-baptismal anointing is transferred now to this new post-baptismal anointing. And the dominant baptismal motive now moves from the baptism of Jesus and his anointing with the Spirit to his death, burial and resurrection. And this is already present in Cyril's catechetical lectures. Just to give an example, he writes there, you were led to the holy pool of sacred baptism 
just as Christ was taken from the cross to the tomb. There in the font, you symbolically reenacted Christ's three-day burial. Gabriel Winkler, who writes about this, comments that the baptismal font, once the womb, or the Jordan, now becomes the sepulchre, and the immersion is now a symbolic gesture of Christ's burial in the earth. So Paul's doctrine of baptism in Romans 6 becomes the prevailing paradigm for Christian baptism. In addition, the oil of the new post-baptismal anointing is now given a specific name. It's called myron, which was not the case previously. And the anointing itself is referred to as the seal. The third comment I want to make about <clears throat> what's going on here is that we, we can gain insight into the meaning of the seal of the Holy Spirit by reading Cyril's instructions to catechumens and to the newly baptised. There were two explicit references to the post-baptismal anointing as the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I've mentioned, Paul VI refers to the first of these, which occurs in one of the catechetical lectures. Here in this lecture, Cyril is telling the newly baptised about the teaching they'll receive each day when they gather after Easter. They'll hear about the pre-baptismal rites, about the water birth, about how they are now like priests who have become partakers in the name of Christ, and of how they were given, use the quote words, the quote the words here, the seal of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So that's the, the first reference. The second reference occurs in the mystagogic catechesis number four, which is on the Eucharist, which comes after he's talked about, obviously, the, the, the seal of the Spirit. And there he refers back to what happened to them when they received the anointing. This is, I'll quote again from that. He anointed your head on the forehead with oil by means of the seal by which you received from, which you received from God to make you the engraving of a signet, which says, Holy to the Lord. Here we can sort of see engraving and seal seem to have equivalent expressions. Now, there's an extended presentation of the meaning of the anointing with chrism uh, presented to the newly baptised in Mystagogic Catechesis number 3, which is the one before and the one I just quoted. While at this point there's no explicit reference to the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the meaning of this anointing is explained. And there are three things we can identify here. The first is that the paradigm for the anointing of the newly baptised is the anointing of Jesus at the River Jordan. The previous pre-baptismal anointing theme is thereby preserved in the post-baptismal anointing. And Cyril says of this event that the Father anointed Christ with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming him saviour of the world. And those who are anointed after their baptism receive the sacramental signs of the Holy Spirit and are properly called Christ's, that is, anointed ones. The second thing to note concerns the sacramental dimension of the action. The oil with which they're anointed is not ordinary, anoint ordinary ointment, but as I've said, it's myron, which can be understood by an analogy with the bread of the Eucharist, says Cyril. Just as after the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the bread is no longer ordinary bread, but the body of Christ, so too, after the invocation, the myron is no longer common ointment, but, to quote Cyril, Christ's grace, which imparts to us his own divinity through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the third thing to note is the spiritual effect of the anointing with the Holy Spirit. And here he explains that the symbolic meaning of their anointing 
is to be understood by reference to the anointing in the Old Testament. And he gives two images. There's Aaron, who after bathing is anointed high priest by Moses. And there's Solomon, who after bathing in the river Gihon was anointed king. And Cyril sees in both these situations a type of the reality of salvation. They're a type of Christ's anointing as priest and king. But for those anointed with the Muron, the anointing isn't a type, but it's the reality of salvation. So to borrow the words of Gabriel Winkler, used in reference to some of the oldest Syriac documents, those who have been anointed become assimilated into the messianic priesthood and kingship of Christ. In other words, those who have been anointed are drawn into the priestly action of Christ and into his eschatological kingship. <coughs> Cyril's exposition of the anointing also includes an exhortation to keep the anointing unspotted. The newly baptised have been strengthened by the anointing and are enabled to do all things in Christ. They have put on the armour of Christ and this enables them to confront the power of the enemy. In the teaching here is a reflection on the biblical text of 1 John 2.27 where the anointing will abide with them and teach them. Referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit, Cyril writes... This sacred gift is the spiritual protection for your body and salvation for your soul. Well, I've presented this exposition of the expression the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit in Cyril not because we can regard it as a forerunner to confirmation in the Western Church but because it gives us a framework for understanding the significance of the formula now in use in the Sacrament of Confirmation. While the order of confirmation's focus is on Pentecost, which indicates a slightly different reference point than Cyril's anointing of Christ in the Jordan, I think it certainly belongs to the same theological framework of anointing. In fact, Cyril no doubt would remind us that a proper understanding of confirmation as a perpetuation of Pentecost must begin with the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan. So that will be the starting point for the second section of the paper, the theology of the, of the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. I begin this section by returning to the Apostolic Constitution, Divinae Consortium Naturae, because it begins the story of confirmation with the image of Jesus after being baptised, coming from the waters of the Jordan and seeing the Holy Spirit come down from heaven. In all the Gospel accounts, the focus is on the descent of the Holy Spirit, more so than on the baptism in the Jordan. In fact, the fourth gospel doesn't even mention the water baptism. In all the gospels, the scene shows the action of the Father in anointing Jesus with the Spirit. We can probably call this an anointing, even though the gospel authors don't use this word. Later, Luke will use it in the synagogue at Nazareth, when Jesus reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And again, in Peter's discourse at the house of Cornelius in Acts 10.38, where Peter refers to Jesus' baptism as an anointing. And as we saw with Cyril, in the patristic era, this was a common way of speaking about the descent of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' baptism. Anointing was also a common enough idea in Jewish literature, especially among the prophets. And usually a person would be anointed to equip them for a divine mission. In the case of Jesus... The anointing is accompanied by the voice from heaven identifying Jesus as the beloved son. 
And I want to place emphasis here on that word, beloved, the beloved son. <clears throat> Hence, his anointing with the Spirit at the Jordan can be understood not just as the beginning of his mission, but as the revelation that he is the Son of the Father. This revelation extends our understanding of him and his mission, which will be revealed more fully through his words and actions, and ultimately at his death and resurrection. It also tells us something important about the relationship the Father has with Jesus, namely that the fundamental gesture of the Father towards Jesus is love. And moreover, as I'll shortly explain, this love is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. The presence of the Spirit here also remind, uh, calls to mind the eschatological Spirit announced and awaited by the prophets. As such, the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan can be interpreted as a unique moment in salvation history. More specifically, in signifying the beginning of his ministry, it signifies the beginning of the end time, the eschaton. This is not to claim that the anointing at the Jordan somehow eclipsed the incarnation as a decisive moment, but that the coming of the Spirit brings about the new era and equips Jesus for his ministry. James Dunn claims, the thought is not so much of Jesus becoming what he was not before, but of Jesus entering where he was not before, a new epoch in God's plan of redemption. And thus, by virtue of his unique personality, assuming a role which was not his before, because it could not be his by reason of the kairos yet unfulfilled. So while we rightly speak of what the anointing of the Spirit means for Jesus, it also signals something about the divine economy in the world. This will gradually be revealed by Jesus, the Anointed One, through his ministry and in his death and resurrection. A further point about the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan is that this action can be said to belong to the realm of the sacramental. It's sacramental because it's happening to the man Jesus. David Coffey explains this. He says, the baptismal anointing is the proclamation of the original anointing which took place at the Incarnation. And this anointing was non-sacramental because it was a bestowal without an offer, the bestowal being so radical that it brought the humanity of Jesus into existence. In the realm of the human world, the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan is a signal of a new reality in the world and for the world. And the new reality is worked out definitively in the mission of Jesus, in his preaching and the mighty works, and most particularly in his death and resurrection. However, this is not the end of the matter. The unfolding of the plan of God also includes the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and the sending of the Holy Spirit on the disciples and the world. Jesus had promised the disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. And the texts where he promises the Holy Spirit make several points about the meaning of this event. And here I've just really stayed with the text that I referred to in, in the um, introduction to the Order of Confirmation. So the first is that the Spirit is the Spirit promised by the Father. So we have a reference there to Luke 24, 29 and to John 15, 26. And second, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on those who believe in him and who love him, and the Spirit will remain with them forever. And here the reference is to John 14, 16. And third, the Spirit will bear witness to Jesus and will empower those who believe in him to do likewise, teaching them what to say and teaching them the truth. And the references here are Luke 12, 12, John 15, 26, and of course, Acts 1 to 8. The significance of what Jesus promised in these sayings is clarified at the Pentecost event. 
So we can take these three points in turn. So we begin with the, the promised Holy Spirit. The most significant of these points is that the Holy Spirit has been promised by the Father. Another way of saying this is that the Holy Spirit is the fulfilment of God's plan. Peter's address on the day of Pentecost interprets the event that was described by Luke with images of rushing wind, tongues of fire and speaking multiple languages. Peter begins by citing the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The marvellous phenomena associated with Pentecost are reminders of the signs that would indicate the end time. So the Pentecost event thus represents the beginning of the last days. These are the days of fulfilment when God pours out his spirit on the world. The coming of the spirit is the definitive sign that the world has now entered this end time. And Peter goes on to speak about Jesus of Nazareth, his deeds of power and his witness to God. Jesus was put to death, but God raised him from death, thereby not abandoning him nor allowing him to experience corruption. After raising him from the dead, God exalted him at his right hand and bestowed on him the promised Holy Spirit. So we now have greater specificity about the pouring out of the Spirit that had been awaited by the prophets. The event is the bestowal of the Holy Spirit on the risen and exalted Jesus, and in turn, Jesus is pouring out of his Spirit. This in Acts 2.33. His mission is now complete, and he has received the fullness of the Holy Spirit for the chosen people of God and for the whole of humanity. James Dunn further clarifies what has happened by saying the climaxed and purposed end of Jesus' ministry is not the cross and resurrection, but the ascension and Pentecost. And Rana explains that Pentecost is the culmination of Easter. He says Pentecost is only an event to which all the events of Easter are orientated with an intrinsic teleology of their own in order to, to find their fulfilment in Pentecost. So let me dwell on this for a moment because it reminds us that while there is a unity to God's salvific action, it's not possible to grasp it with just one single event, say the resurrection. Pentecost is the definitive outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but we've already remarked that the Spirit was poured out on Jesus at the Incarnation and after his baptism in the Jordan. And we could add to that list. Rana helps us here. Let me just quote him. He says, If we wish to understand what Pentecost really is, we must first recognise one point. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter and Pentecost, in other words, all those once and for all events which we celebrate in the great festivals of Christendom, are so closely interconnected that they merely represent the temporal development of one and the same salvific event, the time structure of a single deed of God performed in history and upon mankind. The point is that God is acting in the world, in time, in history. Hence we must recognise those specific moments in history which unfold for us this saving work of God. And this is important when we come to consider the sacraments of the church because they take place in history, the history of the community and of individuals, and insert us into the one salvific mystery. Moreover, in their own way, the sacraments remind us of various events that the biblical narratives present in order that the mystery be unfolded for us. And in this context, the sacrament of confirmation is considered as the memorial of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit. 
Now, the second point we identified regarding Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit was that the Spirit would be poured out on those who believe and would remain with them. Once again, this is further explicated in the Pentecost narrative, particularly Peter's address. Towards the end of his address, Peter is asked by those listening what they must do. His instruction is clear. They must repent, be baptised in the name of Jesus, and their sins will be forgiven, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here we see the language which is at the heart of the order of confirmation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And to appreciate the meaning of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we need to recognise that already in the Acts of the Apostles, this gift has been presented to us as the gift of the Spirit given by Christ from the Father. In other words, we're faced here with an incipient theology of the Trinity. And this incipient biblical theology will be developed in later generations into a fully-fledged theology of the Trinity, which itself shapes the ongoing interpretation of the biblical texts. So it's not my intention to go into all of these details, but rather to call on these theologies to explicate the meaning of the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given at Pentecost. However, there's one principle that we need to recall, namely that whatever we may say of God at work in the world, which people might call the economic trinity, is also true of the inner life of the triune God, which people call the imminent trinity. Before explicating the meaning of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we must, take a few, we must make a few comments about the Holy Spirit and the life of the Trinity. And I'll do this on the basis of the information we've already identified from the biblical narrative. I've already referred to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Jesus after his baptism at the Jordan and noted that this anointing of Jesus revealed that he was the beloved Son of the Father. I've also alluded to the anointing of the Incarnation. There's a strand in the early theological tradition that understands this anointing as the Father bestowing love on the Son. We can look for the response of the Son and find it in the life of Jesus, whose actions can be understood as a loving response to the Father's love for him, but also as his love for humankind. This is particularly the case at his death, considered as an act of obedience to the Father, an obedience that is an act of love. So here in the life of Jesus, we can identify what I'll call the return love of the Son for the Father in the life of the Trinity. Note that what I've done here is to identify from the biblical data the relationship between Jesus and his Father as one of mutual love. And I've extrapolated this to the life of the Trinity and the relations between the Father and the Son. However, apart from the references to anointing at the Incarnation and at the Jordan, I haven't yet mentioned the Holy Spirit. And at this point, I appeal to St. Augustine, who identified this mutual love of the Father and the Son as the Holy Spirit. Let me quote here from, this is book 15 of the De Trinitate. And if the love by which the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, ineffably demonstrates the communion of both, what is more suitable than that he should properly be called love, who is the Spirit common to both? So this leads us to speak of the Holy Spirit as gift. Pope John Paul II endorsed this Augustinian theology in his encyclical Dominum et Vivificantem and identified the Holy Spirit as uncreated love gift. And he wrote, It can be said that in the Holy Spirit the intimate life of the triune God becomes totally gift, an exchange of mutual love between the divine persons, and thus through the Holy Spirit 
God exists in the mode of gift. So if we can say this about the inner life of the triune God, then we can also say it about the action of God in the world. So what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? The short answer is that it is God's love expressed in the world. Paul's phrase in Romans 5.5 sums it up neatly. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And we can identify a range of aspects of this love. In the first place, the gift of the Holy Spirit draws us into the communion of the loving God. And that's what the Apostolic Constitution Divina Consortium Nature described as the sharing of the divine nature given to individuals through the grace of Christ. We can speak about this in relational terms, which are also biblical terms, as being the sons and daughters of God and the brothers and sisters of Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit also brings it about that the divine communion flows out into the world. This is a new people of God gathered together in the new epoch, inaugurated by the paschal mystery of the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus and his sending of the Holy Spirit. For it's no accident that the church comes to light at the Pentecost event. And furthermore, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a permanent gift in the church and in the world. So this brings me now to the third of the promises of Jesus identified earlier, namely that the Spirit will bear witness to Jesus and will empower those who believe in him to do likewise, teaching them what to say and teaching them the truth. This point focuses our attention on the consequences of the gift of the Spirit. Traditional language around confirmation has spoken of this as witness. I'd suggest that witness can be understood as shorthand for the range of consequences of the gift of the Spirit. It will be helpful to see this in terms of both witness to and witness by means of. And again, we can take our lead from the Pentecost event as narrated in Acts 2. And the key text here is Acts 2.42, which speaks of the group that responded to Peter's address. The text says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So those on whom the Holy Spirit is, is poured out are empowered to give witness to the communion into which they have been drawn. This means being witnesses to the love with which God loves the world and loves them. In keeping with the dynamism of the triune God that I've previously mentioned, it also means loving God in return. That is, loving God in the power of the Spirit. This will predominantly happen in two ways. One is by an act of worship, notably, notably in the breaking of bread, done in the remembrance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The other is by love of neighbour. And this latter is understood initially in Acts as love within the fellowship of those who have been baptised and have received the Holy Spirit. However, it's never just that. There is also a universal orientation. The Spirit is now poured out on the whole of creation, giving witness to the Christ. And this, in fact, keeps the community vibrant and dynamic as the Spirit adds to their number. Individuals in the community may receive specific gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the community. In other words, to make concrete the witness of the Spirit in specific times and places. <coughs> So, by way of conclusion, let me return to <clears throat> the order of confirmation, where Paul VI nominated as indicating the essence of confirmation both a particular action, and anointing with chrism, and a particular choice of words, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. This combination serves liturgically to remind us 
of the gift of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost. Confirmation is the sacrament of this gift. As a sacrament that perpetuates the experience of Pentecost, confirmation, like Pentecost itself, must be viewed within a larger framework. I've situated the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost within the framework of God's saving work in the world. This obviously includes the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also takes in the story of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. The story of the Spirit also includes the hope held out uh, by the prophets of a, definit a definitive epoch when God would reign. In presenting this story of the Spirit as broadly as I have, to include the incarnation and the anointing of Jesus after his baptism, I hope that I've shown that the gift of the Spirit given at Pentecost is indeed the saving love of God poured out on the disciples and the world, and that this gift is definitive. Now, when discussing the sacrament of confirmation, people quickly begin to ask questions about its relationship to baptism. These questions often imply that baptism lacks something, or that people receive something at confirmation that they weren't mature enough to receive at baptism. These questions seem an unsatisfactory approach to the sacrament of confirmation. I think they set us up to fail to discover the essence of the sacrament. Nevertheless, it's important to reckon with the relationship between baptism and confirmation, and that will require us to go beyond what I've done today. However, what I have done today should provide the necessary foundation for addressing that question. I hope that I have at least suggested how important was the instruction from the Second Vatican Council that the sacrament of confirmation should be revised in such a way as to show more clearly the intimate connection between this sacrament and the whole of Christian initiation. In other words, its relationship really to both baptism and Eucharist. When we speak about the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit in the context of Pentecost and Confirmation, we're not referring to particular gifts given to individuals for specific purposes or services. We're not referring to a supplementary gift given to some and not to others, or given at a particular stage in life. Rather, we're referring to the Holy Spirit as such. We're referring to the gift that belongs to the very nature of being Christian. So,